Hey there, OrthoBullets podcast listeners. Today's episode of the OrthoBullets podcast is sponsored by Bullet Cards, which are now live on orthobullets.com and coming soon to the Bullets app. What are Bullet Cards, you ask? Well, they are basically modern flashcards backed by a powerful spaced repetition algorithm so you can learn more efficiently with the tried-and-true method, now modernized with AI. You can use our peer-reviewed pre-made flashcards to review critical information or make your own personal flashcards efficiently by creating a question and populating the back of the card with information from our trusted OrthoBullets review topics. Bullet cards are absolutely free, so there's literally nothing to lose and everything to gain. Click the links in our show notes to test out some high-yield bullet card decks and to learn more about how to get started with them. Without further ado, let's get into today's episode of the OrthoBullets podcast. This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of posterior shoulder instability and dislocation from the shoulder and elbow section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Posterior shoulder instability and dislocations are less common than anterior shoulder instability and dislocations, but are much more commonly missed. Diagnosis is made radiographically in the setting of acute dislocations. Chronic instability can be diagnosed with the presence of positive posterior instability provocative tests and confirmed with MRI studies showing posterior labral pathology. Treatment may be non-operative or operative depending on chronicity of symptoms, recurrence of instability, and the severity of labrum and or glenoid defects. Now let's get into the episode, starting with epidemiology. As far as the incidence of posterior shoulder instability and dislocation, these make up 2 to 5% of all unstable shoulders. Know that 50% of traumatic posterior dislocations seen in the emergency department are undiagnosed. Risk factors for posterior shoulder instability and dislocation include bony abnormality and ligamentous laxity. In terms of bony abnormality, know that glenoid retroversion or hypoplasia is a less common cause of instability. Moving on to etiology, with respect to pathophysiology, the mechanism of posterior shoulder instability and dislocation can include trauma for posterior dislocation, microtrauma for posterior instability, as well as seizures and electric shock. So trauma, which can be the mechanism for a posterior dislocation, this makes up 50% of cases that present for evaluation, and this is usually a dramatic presentation. Moving on to microtrauma, which is the mechanism for posterior instability, this may lead to a labral tear, incomplete labral avulsion, or erosion of the posterior labrum. This may lead to gradual stretching of the capsule and a patchous posterior capsule. This is common in linemen, weightlifters, and overhead athletes. This usually has an insidious onset and presentation. In terms of seizures and electric shock, know that tetanic muscle contraction pulls the humeral head out. Anterior instability and dislocations are still more common with seizures. However, posterior dislocations are unlikely to occur without significant trauma, for example, seizures. In terms of biomechanical forces involved in the pathophysiology, know that the flexed, adducted, and internally rotated arm is a high-risk position. Now, let's go over some associated conditions, specifically lesions that are associated with posterior instability. So, avulsion of the posterior band of the IGHL is associated with acute subluxations. Posterior bankart lesions are characterized by detachment of the posterior inferior capsulolabral complex. Reverse Hillsax lesions are associated with a locked and difficult to reduce dislocation. Posterior labral cyst is associated with chronic reverse bankart lesions. Posterior glenoid rim fractures are associated with chronic reverse bankart lesions. Lesser tuberosity fractures are associated with acute posterior dislocations, and a large capsular pouch can be seen on MRI with contrast, often with chronic posterior instability. 
Now, let's go over some relevant anatomy. For a full review about glenohumeral anatomy, be sure to listen to the podcast episode about glenohumeral joint anatomy, stabilizer, and biomechanics. But in this episode, we'll go over the primary stabilizers of the posterior shoulder, as well as static restraints. So in terms of primary stabilizers of the posterior shoulder, the posterior band of the IGHL is the primary restraint in internal rotation. The subscapularis is the primary dynamic restraint in external rotation and is the primary dynamic restraint against posterior subluxation. The superior glenohumeral ligament and coracohumeral ligament is the primary restraint to inferior translation of the adducted arm and to external rotation. The superior glenohumeral ligament and coracohumeral ligament are also the primary static stabilizers to posterior subluxation with the shoulder inflection, adduction, and internal rotation. Finally, in terms of static restraint, know that the labrum deepens the glenoid by 50%. In terms of classification for posterior shoulder instability and dislocation, the ones to know is acute versus chronic and voluntary versus involuntary. So acute refers to trauma, seizure, and electric shock, which has a dramatic presentation. Chronic equals microtrauma from repetition, such as offensive football linemen with insidious onset and presentation. Moving on to the presentation of posterior shoulder instability and dislocation, history typically includes trauma or microtrauma with the arm in a flexed, adducted, and internally rotated position. Chronic instability often presents with insidious onset and vague symptoms, usually pain and not instability, as opposed to anterior instability. This is often seen in sporting or occupational activities that require repetitive pushing with the arm in a forward flex position, for example, football linemen, weightlifters, etc. Symptoms can include pain with flexion, adduction, and internal rotation of the arm. Moving on to physical exam, inspection in these patients may reveal a prominent posterior shoulder and coracoid for acute posterior dislocation. It may be normal from chronic posterior instability from microtrauma. As far as motion assessment in these patients, there is limited external rotation for acute posterior dislocations, and the shoulder may be locked in an internally rotated position, which is common in undiagnosed posterior dislocations. Patients may also have pain on flexion, adduction, and internal rotation for posterior instability. In terms of provocative tests performed in the setting of chronic posterior instability, the ones to know include the jerk test, Kim test, posterior stress test, as well as the posterior load and shift test. The jerk test is performed when you place the arm in 90 degrees of abduction, internal rotation, with the elbow bent. You will then apply an axial force along the axis of the humerus and adduct the arm to a forward flex position. A clunk is positive for posterior subluxation. This is 97% sensitive for posterior labral tears when combined with a Kim test. A Kim test is performed by having the patient seated, the arm at 90 degrees of abduction, followed by flexing the shoulder to 45 degrees of forward flexion while simultaneously applying an axial load on the elbow and posterior inferior force on the upper humerus. The test is positive when pain is present. Moving on to a posterior stress test, in order to perform this maneuver, you will stabilize the scapula and look for posterior translation with a posterior directed force. Pain is elicited often, but this is not a specific finding. Finally, in terms of a posterior load and shift test, you will place the patient supine with the arm in neutral with 40 to 60 degrees of abduction and forward flexion, and then you will load the humeral head and apply anterior and posterior translating forces, noting subluxation. So as far as posterior load and shift grading, 1 plus corresponds to apparent translation, but not to the rim. 2 plus corresponds to translation to the glenolabral rim. 3 plus corresponds to translation over the glenolabral rim. And 4 plus corresponds to translation with complete dislocation. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP and an axillary lateral. 
An AP is unreliable and may show a, quote, light bulb sign. An axillary lateral is the best view to demonstrate a dislocation. Optional views include a Valpo view if the patient is unable to abduct the arm for an axillary view. A CT scan is indicated to analyze the extent and location of bone loss in a chronic dislocation, which is defined as greater than two to three weeks. An MRI is indicated in the setting of chronic posterior instability without history of acute posterior dislocation. An MRI can be used to evaluate for suspected posterior labral tear, reverse Hill-Sachs lesions, or associated rotator cuff tears. This may show a Kim lesion, which is a concealed avulsion of the deep posterior inferior labrum with an apparently intact superficial labrum. Moving on to the treatment of posterior shoulder instability and dislocation, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative options include acute reduction and immobilization in external rotation for four to six weeks. As far as indications, this should be initially attempted for all acute traumatic posterior dislocations. Know that most dislocations reduce spontaneously. As far as the technique, be sure to immobilize in 10 to 20 degrees of external rotation with the elbow at the side. After six weeks, advance to physical therapy, which will involve rotator cuff strengthening and periscapular stabilization, and activity modification, specifically avoiding activities that place the arm in a high-risk position. Moving on to physical therapy, this may be a first-line treatment for chronic posterior instability with rotator cuff strengthening, and periscapular stabilizers may be considered for the in-season athlete. Operative options include open or arthroscopic posterior labral repair, otherwise known as a Bankart procedure, open or arthroscopic posterior capsular shift and rotator interval closure, posterior glenoid opening wedge osteotomy, open reduction with subscapular transfer, otherwise known as a McLaughlin procedure, or lesser tuberosity transfer to the defect, and this is known as a modified McLaughlin procedure. Other options include hemiarthroplasty and a total shoulder arthroplasty. So open or arthroscopic posterior labral repair, otherwise known as the Bankart procedure, is indicated in the setting of recurrent posterior shoulder instability despite an appropriate course of physical therapy. Other indications include continued pain with loading of the arm in the forward flex position, for example in the setting of a bench press or football blocking. Another indication for an open or arthroscopic posterior labral repair is a negative Baton score. In terms of outcomes, there is 80% to 85% success at 5-7 to seven year follow-up after open repair. And note that there are similar outcomes with arthroscopic repair after shorter follow-ups. Moving on to open or arthroscopic posterior capsular shift and rotator interval closure, indications include a positive Baton score. Moving on to a posterior glenoid opening wedge osteotomy, this is indicated in the setting of excessive congenital glenoid retroversion, and know that there are limited studies assessing outcomes with this approach. Moving on to an open reduction with subscapularis transfer, otherwise known as a McLaughlin procedure, or lesser tuberosity transfer to the defect, which is a modified McLaughlin procedure. This is indicated for chronic dislocation less than six months old, and in the setting of a reverse Hill-Sachs defect less than 40%. A hemiarthroplasty is indicated for chronic dislocation greater than six months old, severe humeral head arthritis, collapse of the humeral head during reduction, and a reverse Hill-Sachs defect of greater than 40% of the articular surface. Finally, moving on to total shoulder arthroplasty, this is indicated in the setting of significant glenoid arthritis in addition to one of the hemiarthroplasty indications. Now, let's go over some of these surgical techniques in a bit more detail. Starting with open or arthroscopic posterior labral repair and capsular shift, know that the goal is to repair any labral detachment or capsular tears and or reduce the posterior capsule volume. As far as the approach, let's go over the arthroscopic approach to the shoulder. So a high lateral portal may be better than a standard portal for posterior labral work, for example, drilling trajectory for suture anchors. 
the lateral decubitus position may allow for improved visualization for arthroscopic stabilization. A posterior capsular shift may be performed in addition to labral repair. However, capsular shift may be less desirable in throwing athletes. In terms of closure of the interval, this augments the posterior capsular shift, however, is controversial. Thermal shrinkage of the capsule is historical and is contraindicated due to complications. As far as the mechanism, this breaks collagen crosslinks and the critical temperature is 65 to 75 degrees Celsius. Complications of an open or arthroscopic posterior labral repair and capsular shift include recurrence, capsular necrosis, and axillary nerve injury. Postoperative care involves an immobilizer with the arm in neutral position using an external rotation sling or a standard sling. Postoperative care also involves early range of motion and strengthening, and know that patients can return to full heavy labor and contact sports after six months. Moving on to open reduction with subscapularis with or without tuberosity transfer to the defect, the approach is the deltopectoral approach. The technique to repair the defect can include a subscapularis transfer, otherwise known as the McLaughlin procedure, subscapularis with lesser tuberosity transfer, which is used by most, and this is known as the modified McLaughlin procedure, iliac crest bone graft, which can be used for any glenoid bone loss, disimpaction and bone grafting of the defect, and know that if it's less than three weeks, the surgeon can try disimpaction and bone grafting of the defect. Finally, opening wedge glenoplasty may be indicated with congenital glenoid retroversion. Complications of open reduction with subscapularis with or without tuberosity transfer to the defect include stiffness, avascular necrosis, and osteoarthritis. Finally, let's end this review session talking about some complications. The ones to know include stiffness, which is the most common complication after labral repair, recurrence, which is the second most common, which occurs in 7% to 50% of cases, degenerative joint disease, which is the third most common, adhesive capsulitis, over-tightening of the posterior capsule, which may lead to anterior subluxation or coracoid impingement, and nerve injury, which could be axillary or suprascapular nerve injury. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. First question. A 17-year-old offensive lineman presents with acute on chronic right shoulder pain. His season is nearly complete, but the pain began months prior as he increased his preseason weightlifting regimen, emphasizing the bench press and similar lifts. Pain has persisted since then and now bothers him constantly and is exacerbated when blocking oncoming defenders. On exam, his right shoulder pain is easily reproduced and now with a palpable clunk. What finding would you expect to see on his MRI and what is the best surgical procedure to address this? And the choices are 1. Antero-inferior labral tear and arthroscopic labral repair. 2. Posterior labral tear and arthroscopic labral repair. 3. Posterior labral tear and arthroscopic thermocapsulography. 4. Superior labral tear from 12 o'clock to 2 o'clock and arthroscopic labral debridement versus repair. And 5. Superior labral tear from 12 o'clock to 2 o'clock and arthroscopic biceps tenodesis. The correct answer to this question is posterior labral tear and arthroscopic labral repair. So this presentation is classic for a posterior labral tear with instability and would be best treated with an arthroscopic labral repair. To quickly review, posterior instability is far less common than anterior instability. Etiology of instability may vary, but the most common is attritional damage from repetitive microtrauma. As such, this is commonly encountered among football linemen, rugby players, and swimmers who experience posterior load to the shoulder. 
the common denominator between these is frequently loading a shoulder in the forward flexed and internally rotated position, stretching the posterior inferior glenohumeral ligament, or PIGHL. Physical exam maneuvers that reproduce this mechanism will cause pain. A variety of pathology may be encountered, including simple capsulolabral separation, otherwise known as a reverse bankart, reverse Hill-Sachs lesions, and paraglenoid cysts. Proventure et al. reviewed the diagnosis and management of posterior instability. They know posterior instability is often difficult to diagnose as symptoms may be vague and patients may describe pain with bench press, push-ups, or a decrease in athletic performance. Though physical exam findings may be subtle, they describe the jerk maneuver, which can recreate the instability episode and aid in diagnosis. Bradley et al. conducted a prospective study of contact versus non-contact athletes following arthroscopic posterior labral repair for recurrent instability. There was no difference between the two groups in terms of recurrence or patient-reported outcomes. Additionally, the overall rate of return to sport was 89%, with 67% returning to play at the same level. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, antero-inferior labral tear and arthroscopic labral repair is incorrect, as this is describing the classic bank heart lesion in the setting of anterior instability. Answer 3, posterior labral tear and arthroscopic thermal capsulography is incorrect, as thermal capsulography is not performed due to iatrogenic chondral damage. Finally, answer 4, superior labral tear from 12 o'clock to 2 o'clock and arthroscopic labral debridement versus repair. And answer 5, superior labral tear from 12 o'clock to 2 o'clock and arthroscopic biceps tenodesis are both incorrect, as while slap tears can be seen, the history and exam findings would be different. And moving on to the final question, which of the following patients may benefit from a lesser tuberosity transfer, otherwise known as a modified McLaughlin procedure? And the choices are 1. A kidney transplant recipient with avascular necrosis of the humeral head. 2. A patient with severe rheumatoid arthritis. 3. A young man with a locked posterior dislocation following an electric shock injury at work. 4. A patient with a history of previous shoulder surgery that now has subscapularis insufficiency. And 5. A patient with a large Hillsax defect following an anterior shoulder dislocation. The correct answer to this question is 3. A young man with a locked posterior dislocation following an electric shock injury at work. So forceful posterior glenohumeral dislocations, such as those resulting from seizures or electric shock, may sustain a large reverse Hillsax defect resulting in persistent instability in internal rotation or a locked posterior dislocation. These patients may benefit from having the lesser tuberosity along with the subscapularis advanced into the bony defect on the anterior humeral head, otherwise known as a modified McLaughlin procedure. The original description by McLaughlin involved transferring the subscapularis tendon into the defect and was later modified and popularized by Neer, who recommended transferring the lesser tuberosity with the subscapularis. Finkelstein et al. reported good functional results using this procedure acutely in seven patients who were unstable in internal rotation and had an anteromedial impaction fracture occupying 25 to 40 percent of the articular surface. Hawkins et al. described various treatments for locked posterior dislocations. All four of their patients with a lesser tuberosity transfer did well, and they suggest using it when close reduction fails for smaller defects and for moderate defects with head involvement of 20 to 45 percent. To quickly go over the incorrect responses, none of the other patients meet the accepted indications for this stability procedure. So answer 1, a kidney transplant recipient with avascular necrosis of the humeral head, and answer 2, a patient with severe rheumatoid arthritis, are both incorrect as they may benefit from other procedures such as a shoulder arthroplasty. 
Answer four, a patient with a history of previous shoulder surgery that now has subscapularis insufficiency is incorrect, as they may benefit from subscapularis repair or pectoralis tendon transfer to restore function. And finally, answer five, a patient with a large Hillsax defect following an anterior shoulder dislocation is incorrect, as a Hillsax defect is on the posterior superior aspect of the humeral head and may benefit from bone grafting or remplissage, but not a lesser tuberosity transfer. That's all for this review about posterior shoulder instability and dislocation. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.